Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the RacingNews365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Michael Butterworth and I'm joined as usual by Dieter Renken, Editorial Director of Racing News 365. And we also have with us today Julian Simon Chauton, Founder and Managing Director of JSC7 Motorsport. Julian also served as Chief Race Engineer to Kimi Raikkonen at Alfa Romeo for three years. And I gather, Julian, you're also doing some work for French TV and are off to Canada this weekend for the Grand Prix. Yeah, that's correct. So first of all, thanks for having me, uh, Dieter and Michael. So yes, absolutely. So I created this company at the, at the beginning of the year. Uh, after 15 years in F1, I thought it was a good time to use my knowledge and know-how to to, to build something that I thought uh, there was a hole in the market, let's say. And uh, my first customer is uh, Canal Plus, so the, the French TV broadcaster. And with them, I'm, I've been doing already some uh, live commentary in um, in the Baron Test, in a Melbourne race. And I'm, uh, I'm leaving actually on Wednesday uh, with them for my for the first time. I will be uh, on track, on site with them, uh, commenting the, the Grand Prix. Romain Grosjean will be there as well, so... Uh, it will be will be quite a nice opportunity to to meet some old friends and uh, and so on. So that has been doing going very well because uh, I had a lot of uh, positive return uh, on social media about about all that. So I'm really pleased. It's something completely new for me. But my biggest challenge is to explain to people basically in linear terms, in in simple terms, all the technical aspect of uh, Formula One and what's happening behind uh, behind the, the garage door. Let's say in the team. And uh, it's something I really, really enjoy doing. The second part I'm doing is uh, I'm helping a French team called uh, Saint-Eloc, which are well-known in, uh, in the GT world. And they've just created a single-seater operation this year, starting in Formula 4. And it's a very, very interesting job because even if the category is, a, is quite a low end, uh, it's a very competitive championship. There is over 35 cars. Everybody has the same car. So you need to find uh, the loophole and the, and the right uh, the right uh, things for the car to, to perform. So I'm setting up everything from hiring the mechanics, the, the engineers, putting in place all the procedure, all the working procedure. So it's much more ample than, than I would say, simply a technical director job. So uh, I have absolutely white card on that. So it's, it's really interesting uh, uh, part of my new business, which I'm, I'm trying to expand uh, as much as possible, let's say. Well, it's fantastic to have you with us, Julian, and we very much look forward to hearing your technical insights. But let's kick off the show by talking about Sunday's Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Now, Dieter, you weren't actually in Baku because you're preparing to fly to Canada yourself. Um, It couldn't really have gone much better for Red Bull with that one-two finish, and it couldn't have gone much worse for Ferrari with that double DNF. Now, Dieter, you've spoken on the podcast before about what you feel is the ebb and flow of this 2022 season. But from what we've seen so far, it strikes me that the biggest ebb and flow is with reliability. Absolutely. Uh, Yes, Michael, you're quite correct. I wasn't in Baku. I will be in Canada Uh, because of the the tightness of the sort of logistics getting from Baku across to Canada. I didn't go to uh, to Azerbaijan. But of course, uh, Racing U365, we were represented by our colleague Aaron Deckers, who did a fine job there. So the readers haven't lost out in any way whatsoever. And then, of course, I'll be covering it from from Montreal. But you're quite correct. The the ebb and flow appears to be as a result of reliability. Frankly, no big surprise given the newness of the cars. 
That said, I'm a bit surprised about Ferrari's engine reliability because obviously these aren't new power units. Yes, of course, the, the regulations have allowed some upgrades and some updates, particularly on the, uh, on the hybrid uh, portion of the, of the engine, the power unit. Uh, but still, I'm, I'm rather surprised about this. But if we do, if we do uh, have a look at it, um, the Red Bull suffered, as we know, in the opening race. Uh, Max had problems in Australia. Um, it now appears to be Ferrari's turn. And sitting in the background, Mercedes are quietly clocking up the points uh, without any major issues, although obviously their car isn't quite on par performance-wise. But it just proves exactly what reliability can do for a team. Well, Julian, let's bring you in now. You've obviously got a lot of experience from the engineering side of things and from the pit wall. Are you surprised to see so many retirements uh, so far in 2022? Because Red Bull and Ferrari each, after just eight races, have three mechanical retirements. And that's far more than we've seen in recent years from title winning or even title contending teams. Absolutely. It's very surprising. I mean, Red Bull has been suffering a lot with uh, DRS issues. Uh, and there seems to be a recurrent issue because they, they kept telling the driver even in uh, yesterday to not use the, the DRS from right to, to max in the last uh, last 10 lap of the race or something like this. But they, they're suffering a lot about this issue, which is extremely surprising to me uh, because it's a relatively simple uh, device, let's say. So maybe they, will, they work a lot on the, on the weight and they try to gain weight uh, a lot on these cars that are very heavy and uh, this has an influence on the on the car, while for Ferrari, it's also very surprising. I mean, uh, Monaco, we've seen there were, uh, they had the race in their hands and uh, it didn't, uh, it was quite a disaster for them, let's say. And in a bit of similar scenario in um, in, uh, in Baku, where uh, again, Charles was uh, leading the race, he was on pole, he should have won this race. And uh, the cooling has changed a lot on these cars. And the, even if the engine is relatively similar, the way the airflow is going into the car is pretty different. So this could have an influence on reliability. But even though a team like Ferrari should get on top of this issue much earlier, you know what I mean? It's, it's quite incredible that we see so many uh, mechanical failure. Yeah, and it's not just Ferrari either, because Joe Guan Yu and Kevin Magnussen, whose cars both have Ferrari power units, also pulled off and didn't finish in Baku. So that's four mechanical retirements from cars with Ferrari power units. Um, Charles Leclerc is certain to have to take a grid penalty now at some point in the season. Dieter, how concerned would you be by this unreliability if you were Mattia Binotto? I'd be very, very concerned. In fact, I did ask him this yesterday. If we look at the point situation at the moment, Ferrari are actually two full, full house, one, two finishes behind Red Bull. What do I mean by that? It means that Red Bull would need to retire both cars in the next two races, and Ferrari would have to come first and second and get the two fastest laps simply to pull ahead. And I think that's a big, big gap when you consider that we're currently effectively one-third or 40% of the way through the season. So I'd be very, very concerned about that if I'm a tier. Of course, when I asked him the question, you know, he did, he did sort of shrug it aside, as one would expect. He said, we're focusing on ourselves. We're not looking at what the others are doing, etc. But I would be very, very concerned. What we should not overlook is that Ferrari are now heading for 15 years without a world championship. 
And, you know, that, that's a long time. I remember back in the, in the 80s uh, when it was 1979 through to 1996 when Michael joined. You know, that was a 17-year period and people were saying Ferrari's now in the last chance saloon. And I sincerely hope for the entire Scuderia that we're not looking a repeat of that sort of situation. Well, Julian, what do Ferrari do in this situation? Because this is three mechanical retirements in the last three races for the Scuderia. What do they do? Do they need to dial back on a bit of power in order to gain a little bit more reliability in that engine? Well, what you have to understand, all this team, all the team have huge reliability departments with uh, several heads and people working uh, 24 hours, seven on uh, just on reliability. So... They will go in back trying to understand what was the, the problem, if it was a mechanical uh, failure, mechanical structural problem, or if it's something related to cooling or something uh, something else. But yeah, for sure, there will be a lot of work uh, going on uh, at the factory to try to understand what has gone wrong, basically. But yeah, it's very, it's very concerning because we are at the beginning of the season and we are seeing a lot of issues. You mentioned uh, the Ferrari uh, customer team. Uh, you have to you have to understand that a team like Haas, they don't take only the power unit, they take the full gearbox with all the internal and the hydraulic, all this kind of thing. So uh, it's a much bigger partnership than um, than uh, what people might uh, might see or might know. And if they have a problem on the hydraulic, for example, it certainly come from the the, the ferry side. You know, after it could be due to the integration of their system in their car, but. Yeah, it's, it's very concerning for all the, the Ferrari, Ferrari customer team as well. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the race now. And uh, unfortunately, because both Ferraris retired so early on, we were robbed of what was uh, shaping up to be an intriguing battle between Ferrari and Red Bull. Notably, Charles Leclerc, who stopped after that uh, early virtual safety car period to clear Carlos Sainz's Ferrari. Leclerc went in for an early pit stop. The two Red Bulls didn't, so that when they did eventually stop, Leclerc emerged in first place. Uh, unfortunately for him, he then retired a couple of laps later and we were robbed of seeing what would have happened. But with those tyres on, could he have held off Verstappen and Perez until the end of the race on those hard tyres? I think it would have been very, very tight. Um, I think the major advantage is that uh, it appeared as though the Red Bulls had the sort of straight line speed. And of course, in Baku with that long, long straight, I think it would have made it relatively easy to, to pass the Ferraris. But other than that, I think it, it could have been a very, very close fight. Certainly a lot more thrilling than watching the two Red Bulls running around at the head of the field. Yeah, it was a shame that we didn't get to see that. But uh, Julian, let's bring you in again. Leclerc went on to those hard tyres on lap 10. Based on what we know about the pace that Verstappen and Perez had, especially Verstappen, who won the race by 20 seconds, could Leclerc have kept them behind for the entirety of the rest of the race? Well, uh, what you have to know is that obviously the team are doing hundreds and thousands of uh, strategy simulation during, uh, before an event and before the, the race. And I would say a safety car or VSC on lap 10 is probably one of the worst case scenario because it's too early um, to pit and probably to go to the end comfortably. And uh, hence we've seen some team pitting, some not. And, um, and also, if I remember, Leclerc had a, quite a bad stop as well when he stopped on top of, uh, of uh, pitting early. So this didn't help at all. But yeah, it was very, I think, very interesting that they pitted so early. But for me, he would not have been able to do another 40 plus lap competitively on his set of tires. So uh, I guess he would have had to, probably to stop again. But 
it was really a bad, bad scenario for the team. And uh, it's really tricky to know, even with the data that uh, all the team have to predict accurately if the tire would have, uh, would, have, would have been able to hold until the end of the race. You know what I mean? Uh, Julian, from your, from your experience of Baku, was the likelihood of another VSC, which is exactly what we had later on, and not a distinct uh, possibility. And therefore, Ferrari believed that by pitting him early, they would still have another shot later on? Absolutely, absolutely. There is a high chance of a probability of a safety car VS in Baku, so probably they gamble on, on this opportunity as well. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Julian, but that would have meant that, that Charles would then, of course, be able to change again. So had his engine um, uh, not expired, he would then still have been on fresher rubber towards the end of the race. Correct, correct. Just continuing with that strategy there, Julian, you talked about the many, many different permutations that the team is going through over how the race might develop. At a track like Baku, which is obviously a street circuit with very, very little runoff, a very high chance of safety cars. We didn't actually see a safety car, but we did see a couple of virtual safety cars, and the first of which there, many teams and drivers decided to use that in order to make their first pit stops. In terms of planning the race and planning the strategies at Baku, how much more difficult is it to do that? Does it go out of the window a bit more at Baku than it would at, say, Silverstone or Austria? Absolutely. So what you do is that you have... um Amongst the hundreds of simulation you, you're doing, you take the, the most, let's say, probable simulation that you think will happen. So that gives you a base, a structure, base scenario of what to do in terms of a certain situation. And then on top of that, you need to be flexible to react to, because you can't plan for everything, you know what I mean? Simulation can, apply, can plan up to a certain point, but the only... A good thing about the, having all this scenario is to give you, let's say, a roadmap of what I'm going to do, depending on what scenario are going to, to happen. But uh, that's why we see some teams are stronger than others. Uh, you can see Red Bull, for example, is that they are for sure this base, this roadmap scenario, but they have a very strong pit wall as well. And there are a lot of experienced people in there that can able to react to certain situation and maybe sometimes going out of the, you know, of what the simulation are saying and saying, okay, let's do that because that's the best scenario. You need, you need this kind of feeling and this kind of uh, uh, experience to know when you have to pit and how you have to react to certain situations. And that's some team are better. Uh, we have seen that uh, a lot in the past than others. You were obviously a race engineer at Alfa Romeo who were towards the rear of the grid, not really towards the front. When you're working for a team towards the back of the grid, is it easier to take more risks and take a bit of a gamble rather than if you're a team like Ferrari and Red Bull fighting at the front who have more to lose? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, obviously, you try to always to get the best uh, out possible with your car, but uh, when you're a bit more running at the back, uh, you check all the scenario possible, but uh, taking a gamble is for sure easier than uh, when you're running at the front and fighting for the for the win because you say you have nothing to lose. So, I mean, if you're 18, you might as well try something a bit different to be put you uh, off sequence with the others. You know what I mean? Well, it's inevitable now that Charles Leclerc will have to take a grid penalty at some point for excessive component usage. Uh, there are stories that he might do that as early as the next round in Montreal. Now, Julian, if you're Ferrari and you know that Leclerc is going to have to take a penalty at some point, probably in the coming races, would you look at Montreal as a race where traditionally there have been some strange results, some unusual circumstances, a lot of safety cars? Would you use Montreal to take that penalty rather than, say, Silverstone or Austria, which are the next races coming up? 
Well, uh, yeah, uh, obviously it's always a question and it's always a strategic discussion between the teams on the, where do we take an engine penalty and usually you try to take it on the track where uh, overtaking, let's say, is relatively easy. So if you take track like a Silverstone or Austria, as you mentioned, it's quite uh, difficult to pass. So probably Canada would be a good opportunity, even if they take a, a big hint in a grid penalty. I would uh, I would take it probably if they need in uh, in Canada. After uh, you never know exactly what the team are deciding in behind closed door and uh, what they want to do. But yeah, usually you try to take it on the track where it's easier to overtake and. Uh, and where the the, 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 the great penalty will be uh, for a lesser extent, let's say. Well, something that was very prevalent at Baku was the porpoising along that very, very long back straight. Mercedes, once again, seemingly suffering very, very badly with that. And in fact, Lewis Hamilton at the end of the race looked in considerable discomfort as he climbed out of his W13. Now, there's been talk from Mercedes and maybe some of the other teams that the FIA should maybe look at changing the rules to alleviate the bouncing, which is very, very prevalent, certainly at Baku and in some other circuits as well. Dieter... Is that a realistic proposition or would that unfairly penalise some of the other teams like, for example, Red Bull and Alpine, who seem to have dialed out the porpoising a little bit better? Well, I think the first thing to say here, Michael, is that it's not really up to the the FIA alone to change the regulations. To change them at this stage would require unanimity. In other words, all teams plus the FIA plus Formula One to agree to any change. So to achieve that would be almost impossible for this year. Uh, to try and achieve it for next year, because we're beyond the the rule change deadline, um, it would require 28 out of 30 votes. So two teams voting against it, or three teams voting against it. And I think you'd find those pretty easily if one had a look at at Red Bull and AlphaTauri, who I would imagine would vote in unison. And I would imagine that Ferrari would come in there as well, because very, very simply, although they do have porpoising, it doesn't appear to affect them from a performance perspective, whereas a rule change would, of course, open the door to Mercedes to come and enter into the the, uh, equation. So I would imagine it would be pretty difficult to change the, the rules for next year. That means that we're looking potentially at, at 2024. And let's not forget that this regulation, this regulation set expires at the end of 25. Therefore, we'd be changing regulations for two years only. And we couldn't keep those regulations beyond then because the power unit regulations expire at the end of 25. And that's when Formula One plans on going for a 50-50 hybrid um, ICE power split. So I think it's very, very difficult. And let's not forget that the porpoising can be cured through adjustments to ride heights. We saw that in the late 70s, we saw it in the 80s, and we've also seen it this year where teams have said, okay, we will raise the ride height to give the uh, the drivers a better ride. So there are ways and means around it, and I think it would unfairly penalize those who have actually managed to work their way around it. I've often thought that maybe it's not coincidental that a team like Red Bull or Ferrari, who have very experienced, uh, when I say elderly, I don't mean sort of grey-haired walking stick, but Adrian Newey has been around the block for a long time, and so was Rory Byrne at Ferrari. And both of them were exposed to porpoising back in the 80s, whereas some of the other teams haven't got that sort of experience uh, uh, set in their, in their operations. And I'm wondering whether this hasn't affected it. 
the one thing I do need to add there uh, is that the regulations can, of course, be changed without unanimity on the basis of safety. And the FIA does have the safety card in its pocket, which they can trigger. However, one has to question whether a phenomenon which Mercedes, for example, are suffering from, which can be dialed out through raising the ride height, should actually be viewed as a safety issue. Yes, of course, it, it can be painful for the drivers. Yes, of course, we saw uh, Lewis getting out with his, his, uh, his back injury. Uh, one does, if one is cynical, one does question whether it's quite as bad as it is, particularly given the fact that George didn't seem to suffer. But, you know, that's not for me to judge. That's for the physiotherapists and the doctors to judge. But ultimately, the big question is, is it a safety issue if it can be dialed out? And I don't believe so. And therefore, we are into the normal process. Yeah, Mercedes have certainly been suggesting that uh, the porpoising should be looked at on safety grounds. Uh, but Julian, to what extent would raising the ride height counter the porpoising that we're seeing from the likes of Mercedes? And just how much performance would they lose? Well, uh, first of all, I would like to hold back a bit about this porpoising issue because we've all been surprised, I think, how the team didn't uh, preempt uh, all this issue with porpoising. And what you have to know is that in the wind tunnel, basically, when you simulate your car for the next year, the car, the model is fixed, basically. So obviously, the, the wheels are turning. You have, a, you have the belt uh, running uh, below the car, simulating the, the, the airflow around the car, but the model is fixed simply because it's held by a single mast on top of the of the of the whole loop and the, the car itself the model itself has no movement so there is no way to simulate uh, in the wind tunnel the purpose the only way you would have is what they did uh, back in the days you, you would need kind of a mast at the front axle and the rear axle and inducing a kind of oscillation on the model to try to replicate this purposing, but team are not set up to do this kind of thing. So it was very difficult for the team to, to plan for that. What they did see, however, is that they saw uh, that the, these kind of cars were working, were getting a lot of downforce, running very, very low at the bright height. And, um, and they saw some loss of downforce when the car was touching basically the floor, which is effectively what we see with the, the bouncing. So yes, uh, the effect to counteract on that would be to raise the ride height, but then you start to lose a lot of performance because we've seen Hamilton. There is a reason why they were they were trying different kind of setup also compared to to, to George, and they tried to run the car as low as possible, or they could where the performance, where the window, the peak performance is, and the downside of that was a huge purposing that create a lot of problem in the, in, the, in driver bodies. You have seen Hamilton at the end of the race; he could barely get out of the car, so. That's a big issue. So one of the first things that team has to do is to raise, per, to raise the, this rear ride height. But then you start to lose the effect of the, 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 the ground floor, you know. And how much they use is huge. You're talking about 20, 30, even 40% of loss of downforce, depending how much you raise, obviously. So it's clearly not the direction the team are, are trying to achieve. But there is a lot of way to, to work on that. And we've seen... Uh, Alpine, which historically always been very good uh, on on their damper setting, you you can you can act a lot on the on the dumping of the bump, on the rebound, on the scar to try to moderate this uh, purposing effect. And uh, what is surprising to me is a team like Mercedes can't seems to 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 get at the bottom of their uh, of this issue. We makes me think that um, probably the philosophy of the car is like this and the, the way they develop the car is to run as low as possible and they're, and they're struggling to find the optimum performance. 
it strikes me that looking within the team, it feels like George Russell is handling this situation a little bit better than Lewis Hamilton is. Why might that be the case? Well, he's the new kids on the blocks. He has everything to prove. And uh, Hamilton used to be used to have a car since 2014 that is winning relatively easy. He's a really good driver, obviously one of the best uh, out there. But he always had also a race uh, winning car when George didn't. And uh, clearly they are trying probably some um, different direction to try to improve the the, the situation. But uh, the bottom line is that he's struggling much more to, than George to, 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 to have good results and find the optimum performance. Well, let's talk about off-track matters now, because there were rumours during the Baku weekend that Oscar Piastri, the Alpine reserve driver, would very, very soon be heading to Williams to replace Nicholas Latifi, perhaps even as soon as after the Canadian Grand Prix. Dieter, what do we know about this? Well, we don't know anything other than what our sources have very kindly told us, but I've heard from various sources that there is a distinct possibility that uh, Williams have done a sort of a cost-benefit calculation where they've said Nicholas is bringing in X amount um, and now he's also not scored any points which has lost us Y amount in terms of prize monies therefore let us have a look at it and see whether or not somebody else could perform better obviously one then says what's the situation with Nicholas's contract because it's well known that the family company Safina has actually funded the drive so they turn around and they say, well, the, the Latifi family may require a payoff of X. Uh, Alpine, are you prepared to cover that or a portion of that? And if you are, how many points do we think that uh, Oscar Piastri, who obviously has had a stellar junior career, would bring to the table and what would that be worth? Let's not forget that, that Williams have now slid down to 10th place again, having been ahead of Aston Martin for a while, a very short while, but still ahead of them. And I think it's crucial that, that Williams do try and get back up there off the 10th place. And to do that, they obviously need somebody who's a regular point scorer. My information, my sources are that there have been talks um, and that it is a distinct possibility. I was asked yesterday what I thought the percentage is, and I said probably 80%. I don't think it's a done deal, but I think it's an 80% deal. Is that 80% that uh, Piastri is in the car after Montreal? Correct. That what they would do is probably give Nicholas uh, his home Grand Prix, although this is his third season. He hasn't actually raced in Canada because the last two events were cancelled due to COVID. Therefore, they'd let Nicholas run at home. And thereafter, I think that the, the, you know, the smart money is on them doing a deal with Nicholas and saying, you know the car, you know the, um, uh, the sim work, you've done all that sort of stuff. Uh, why don't you stay on as third driver for us? We can still keep Safina on the car. There'll be a bit of a payoff and prepare yourself for a future career in, say, sports cars, which incidentally he, he'd participated in with, with fair success before he came into single-seater racing. Well, Julian, I wanted to ask you something a little bit different now. You were obviously Kimi Raikkonen's senior race engineer at Alfa Romeo for three years. What sort of an effect did it have on Alfa, or Sauber as it was then, a team which is in the lower reaches of the grid, to have somebody like Kimi coming to the team, a world champion, a proven race winner? What effect did that have at Alfa in terms of galvanising the team and providing leadership and direction? Well, it was a huge, there was a huge buzz. I remember you know, when we learned that Kimi was uh, was coming back to, to Sauber, to Alpha, and uh, 
he brought a huge boost to the to the team and everybody was really really happy about that and uh, myself in the first case yeah because I knew I knew Kimi since the Lotus days already so and what did he bring he bring all his experience all his uh, race awareness which is absolutely phenomenal uh, when I say race awareness is what's happening around you when you're driving a car and some drivers have it and some drivers just don't I mean you could see even with a car that was not the best, uh, he did some. I remember Portimao start, for example, when he went from 18 to six, and within a within a lap, I mean, he has this vision of the race and what he needed to do to to perform, which was absolutely exceptional, and which I haven't seen in many drivers at all. And what you have to know is that Kimi always been someone very passionate about uh, driving, about improving the car, and our relationship together was really good because. I mean, I remember him calling me the weekend saying, oh, yeah, I didn't think about this anterior bar or this setup. We should do that and that. I remember we have that. And he was really someone always pushing to try to improve the setup and, uh, and, uh, and the development of the car. So obviously, as his way, he had his way of doing, which for some people could, uh, could, have, could, have, uh, could have been a bit uh, difficult, let's say, because he's someone very open, very frank, who say the things how they are. He has no filter. So you had to, to, to know what you wanted, but he brought a lot and a lot of experience in terms of pit stop, in terms of setup, in terms of uh, development of the car. And uh, I think the team used uh, a lot of experience even these days. Well, looking ahead now, we're only a few days away from the start of the Canadian Grand Prix weekend. Dieter, what are you expecting to see in Montreal? Do you think the form book will be roughly the same as it was in Baku? Well, certainly my opinion is that, but I think Julian can, can also give us a, a perspective from a, a race engineering uh, point of view, because I believe that the circuit Baku and Montreal are very similar. They're both sort of street circuits. They're both are very long straights. They both have some sort of twisty bits in them. Um, they both at sea level, so the, the uh, performance of the power units should be, should be um, relatively unaffected by altitude. Uh, and in turn, and obviously also air pressure, et cetera, from an aero perspective. So I would imagine that they're very similar. But of course, the big, big question is the tires, the surface, the abrasiveness of the surface. And I think this is where, where Julian can, can bring his experience to bear. Yeah, so, yeah, it's not too dissimilar. I would say you run in, uh, in Canada with a bit more, with more downforce than Baku. Uh, simply because in Baku, the straights are really, really long and you can gain a lot running low downforce. So we will see the cars going back to almost, not maximum downforce, but definitely higher downforce level than Baku. The other big difference compared to Baku, in Baku, there is no curbs. The cars are not taking any curb. While in Canada, the curbs are really aggressive and to and to, to, to have performance, again, lap time, you have to be able to strike the curb and the car has to be able to land after the curb very well so there is a lot of mechanical grip and a lot of work you do on the dumping on the car to to help this uh, curb strike so um, yeah i think the the other thing is that we've seen in the past the the asphalt cracking up especially in turn 10 in the airplane when they were doing some uh, some repair overnight so it's not a track that is used very often at all uh, so yeah it is a bit different so i would not be surprised we see other uh, Problem and the team will 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 find that uh, they have new problem again, especially with the curb strike uh, and all these ground effect uh, cars. So it will be it will be very interesting to see. 
Julian, if I could could just ask you, please, there about the 18-inch tires and the curbs, because obviously you have a far smaller sidewall height. Will that yes. affect the car's ability to absorb the curbing? Absolutely. Well, the, the car are heavier. The, the sorry, the tires are heavier. The tires are bigger. The tires are stiffer. So all that goes against uh, curb strike. But uh, also the, the dumping is also different compared to last year. So to counteract that, but for sure the the the, the car will not be. I suspect they will be quite uncomfortable to to drive. Also because they are much heavier. The 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 more you add weight. The more the curb strike become difficult, so you add that to the down, to the the ground effect, uh, to the power pressing issue, and I think team will have a lot of struggle to go faster on this track. Uh, Julian, yeah, you spoke about the power pressing. We know that Montreal can be very bumpy. Uh, Baku is relatively smooth. Do you think the power pressing will be a lot worse? Yeah, I think we will see. A, I, I, it's difficult to say. Uh, I mean, if team can't simulate it, it will be. It will be it will be difficult to, to to say for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised at all that uh, we see even more issues proposing in in Canada compared to back yes. Because I think one of the other uh, cures for porpoising is obviously to go stiffer. So even if you don't have the um, as much porpoising, which is a possibility, but let's assume porpoising is reduced because of the uh, to reduce porpoising, they would have to go stiffer. And therefore, I think that the ride would be a lot more uncomfortable. So could we see a repeat of, of Lewis's back uh, situation, for example? Uh, absolutely. And even worse because of this curb strike. I mean, if you see the, the curbs in Montreal, especially in Sector 1, they are huge. And you really need to ride them to gain performance. So I think that we'll have a, that we'll have a, a difficult ride around this track, actually, yeah. Well, that's just about all the time we have for this edition of the podcast. So it simply remains for me to say, Dieter, thank you very much for your insight as usual. And we'll be hearing from you again after the Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. You know, the last time that I was in Canada was in 2019 because of the, the pandemic, of course. And I'll be publishing my diary on each of the three days there. So the readers, please look out for them. And Julian, it's been absolutely fascinating to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for taking the time to appear on the show. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Dieter, for having me. And I'm as well really looking forward to go to, go to Canada after all the, the, the COVID stop, let's say. And I'm looking forward to work with Canal Plus during these days. And if you'd like to hear more of Dieter's insights, you can follow him on Twitter at Racing Lines. And don't miss Dieter's diaries from F1 Race Weekends, which are published regularly on the RacingNews365.com website. That's it for this edition of the RacingNews365.com podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back after the Canadian Grand Prix.